Welcome to the Weave Podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Gist Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Welcome to Contextualizing Textiles. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Donna Hardy of Sea Island Indigo. Donna Hardy is an indigo grower and dyer located in Athens, Georgia. She's worked with various indigo varieties, but is known mainly for working with a tropical indigo ferro variety that has origins from over 250 years ago. Donna's research and practice stretch over many years, and I am truly grateful for the wisdom that she shared with us this episode. Hey, Donna, it's so great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me today, having me, uh, inviting me to come and talk with y'all. Um, I love sharing everything I can about Indigo. <laughs> and can you start out by telling us about your background and how you found your way towards textiles and Indigo? I'll be happy to. A long, long time ago, um, I could probably be the mother of most of the listeners, to be quite honest. Um, a long time ago, I bought a book on herb gardening. And in that book was a chapter on how to raise a dye garden. And at that point, I'd always been fascinated by textiles. Um, I, my, my grandmother and my aunt were both quilters, and I learned how to sew at a very young age and made most of my clothes in high school and all that kind of thing. But I'd never really thought about where the color on your clothes comes from. So that chapter on how to grow a dye garden just sort of started it all. I'm like, hmm, I need to learn more about this. At that time, I was living in Gainesville, Georgia, and married, uh, managing my now ex-husband's dental office and raising three children. And I found a group of women up in Dahlonega, Georgia. So the north part of Georgia is all mountains, part of the Appalachian Mountains. And I found this group of women up in Dahlonega, that were raising sheep and foraging for dye plants. So I started going up there and joining them. Well, I had to have something to dye, so I got a spinning wheel. And then I didn't even know how to knit, so then I learned how to knit. And then I'm like, okay, I need to learn more. So I got a loom and started weaving. And one thing led to another. Um, I've started buying fleeces and processing them and dyeing them and all of that. And I joined the Chattahoochee Handweavers Guild in Atlanta. That's about an hour's drive down there. And to learn more about weaving. And with after that, um, still had this huge interest in dyeing. And I was using Procyon and MX dyes to dye with. But we decided, the Chattahoochee Handweavers Guild, or CHG, decided to do um, uh, the Handweavers Guild of America's, um, oh, what's it called, Certificate of Excellence in Dying, and host that. So the two um, examiners for that HGA sent to Atlanta were Betsy Blumenthal, and she was sort of like the... Uh, Synthetic dyes, and then Michelle Pipplinger of Seattle, of Earth, Earth Hughes in Seattle, was the one for natural dyes. Well, as soon as I met Michelle, I realized that I needed to learn everything that she knew. And I mean, the woman uh, was is incredible, and she is actually one of the 
people responsible for bringing natural dyes back in the 70s and 70s and early 80s into the United States. Um, she sort of protect, perfected the technique of natural dye extracts. So we can really credit all of these ex, using all these natural dye extracts to Michelle. Um, I started traveling to Seattle uh, in the summertime to she was like mentor under her and study with her. And we were having a conversation in her studio one day, just sort of sitting there talking. And she said, well, you know, indigo used to be grown in South Carolina. Now I was born and raised in Georgia. So I kind of knew that from history, but it clicked when she said that. And I had the thought, if they did it then, why can't we do it now? So that was a long time ago. So sort of fast forward, I kept studying with Michelle and, you know, attending weaving workshops and dyeing workshops and all this kind of stuff. Well, life happened and I ended up buying a cabin up above Dahlonega, up in the mountains up there and spent about eight years up there just sort of, you know, figuring out what I was going to do. Um, um, I tried growing. I was really interested in growing, foraging and growing, foraging for dye plants and growing my own dye plants. So I was able to grow woad. I was able to grow Japanese indigo, persicaria, tinctoria. But I couldn't quite get the indigo ferrous to grow. Actually, the growing season up there is just a little bit too short. So at that time, my youngest son was attending the College of Charleston, um, working on his master's. And I started going down there and digging through the archives of um, in the, the museums and the archives in, in, South, in Charleston about how indigo was grown historically. And started reading all these newspapers from the 1700s and, you know, trying to figure this all out. I decided it was like this. So it's like one cold night, like where I lived on this mountain was about 2,800 feet in elevation. And the top of the mountain was on up above that. And in the wintertime, the wind would blow from the northwest and it would literally would howl around the top of the mountain. It howled. And I was laying in bed and it was a new moon. It was so cold and it was so dark. I put my hand in front of my face and could not see my hand. And I like, I'm moving to Charleston and I'm going to grow indigo. So I, it took, you know, several months to get everything together and go down to Charleston and find a place to stay, to live until I sold the cabin. And so I closed it up and moved to Charleston and decided to grow indigo, <laughs> really not knowing what I did, knowing anything. You know, I do come from a long line of farmers, but mm. besides having gardens, you know, herb gardens and flower gardens in my yard, I didn't have much experience farming. But, you know, you learn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what was it like when you first started growing indigo farra? Like, what were some of the challenges that you may have had trying to get the crop to grow? And Right. Well, the first first was finding seeds. So I sourced my first seeds from Mexico. And when I moved to Charleston, I asked um, some of the botanists down there and some of the historians if they knew of indi- any indigo that had survived since it was an industry pre-Revolutionary War and pre-Revolutionary War Charleston. 
And they all said, no, no, none had survived. So I first I I was living in an apartment until the cabin sold. And I made my son move in with me because I wasn't going to pay for two apartments, you know, kind of thing down there. And so we were living in this apartment and I was looking for land and I contacted all these people for land that I could rent and couldn't find any. And I got very frustrated. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to throw these seeds in the marsh and be done with it. And um, I went out to John's Island to a farm, a goat farm, to buy goat milk and to make yogurt, actually. I wanted to make yogurt. And Casey, the woman who owned it, said, what are you doing? Why, Why did you come to Charleston? And I told her and how I had no luck in finding any land to grow it she says come here says we walked around the side of her house and said you can grow all the indigo you want right here and it was a it had already been plowed she said you have to do all the work she said we'll provide the land but and you can use all the goat compost all of the com you know anything that you want but you've got to do all the work so that was a very long hot summer i planted the seeds too early in march um i planted them Oh, probably, you know, the middle of March. And then we had two weeks of cool weather, cool rainy weather. And they were all looking at me like I was crazy because it literally took them a month to come up the first time. (laughs) And they thought, well, she doesn't know what she's doing. But finally they came up. And I mean, I have wheelbarrow loads of loading the compost and the, you know, go clean out the field with the goat manure and dressing the rows with that. And, um, watering and hoeing and you know it was a long hot summer but by the end of the summer the indigo was over my head it was almost 10 feet tall and which is unusual because of it's because it's so rich yes there's a lot of nitrogen in the soil Mm, from the goats so that's from the goat goat manure yep yep (laughs) So, so i uh was one day it was raining and i couldn't go out there or didn't go out there and I was doing more research online and ran across a picture of an indigo plant growing on Osaba Island. Now Osaba is off the coast of Savannah, Georgia. You know, Savannah and Charleston are about two hours apart. And I immediately contacted Elizabeth DuBose, who is the director of the Osaba Island Foundation. You know, they had her information on the article, and I'm like, is this really indigo? And she said, yes, and it's been growing here for over 270 years. And I'm like, I had been told there was none. She said, well, it's here, and Ossipal was an indigo plantation before the Revolutionary War. So they invited me down, and we did a few little tests on the indigo, and it produced this beautiful, vibrant, blue just really different from other blues and so now for six years this will be my sixth year i think yeah i've been going to osabai and doing um, one day workshops uh, for the public down there using this indigo this historic indigo so that's a lot of fun um osabai itself is just a remarkable place it's uh, owned by the state of Georgia. There's no bridge out there, so it'll never be developed, which is a blessing. And so anyway, so that's, that's the story of Osaba. Um, still was growing the indigo in Charleston and living there. And Glenn Roberts, uh, actually I contacted Glenn Roberts of Anson Mills and the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation 
because I was trying to figure out how to get people to grow indigo for me. And I know, knew he had been helping, having people grow. And I told him, I contacted him and told him what I was doing. He said, I want to see that. So he came out and saw the indigo and immediately took me over to uh, the Coastal Research and Education Center on Savannah Highway in Charleston, um, CREC for short, and introduced me to Brian Ward, Dr. Brian Ward, who is um, like this plant genius kind of thing. He can get just about anything to grow, and he's the one responsible for helping to bring back things like the Carolina gold rice and the Benny seeds and the... Um, African runner peanut and all these heirloom grains. He's the, he like starts these things. So I took him a handful of seeds and he grew the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation, um, funded the first year of grow growing there at um, CREC. And so Brian's been growing and we've sort of been increasing the seed supply. And uh, so I've been working with them. And then the next year I grew... Uh, Indigo out at Rebellion Farms, which is out in Ravenel, uh, owned by Jeff Allen. And that year I grew Indigo, Carolina Gold Rice, and C. Allen Cotton. Wow. And that year literally almost killed me because it was 110 and I was out in the heat hoeing and watering and, <laughs> and all that. So... And that year we did, I did a big three, two and a half day workshop uh, with a, with this indigo and other kinds of indigo. And that was a, a big success. So, and then the year after that, I moved up here to Athens, mm. which is where I live now. So, wow, interesting. I haven't grown much. It's been here, it's just, life happens again and, you know, things have happened and I've not been able to grow like I had intended and but things are getting better so that's a good thing <laughs> yeah so you mentioned a couple things sea island cotton the indigo variety that's specific to Azabo island and the carolina gold rice can you kind of talk about the historical context of these crops yes um First, let me say that none of these crops in the low country in the southeast would have ever been possible without the blood, sweat, and tears of the enslaved Africans and the enslaved Native Americans. Um, people have asked me, where can I go see indigo-dyed textiles and things in Charleston and even Savannah? I'm like, there are none. These, these crops were strictly a commodity. They were raised in order to make money and they sold the indigo to England uh, rice was sold to England and Europe and the sea Allen cotton um, I guess it's sort of I can't remember the timeline of that but it, it sort of ended up being t- overtaken by the upland cotton it uh, the upland cotton doesn't need as much care and handling as the sea island cotton does when it's harvested and um, processed. But none of this would have happened without the enslaved African Americans, enslaved Africans and the Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but that was a huge industry. And the, the, these com- 
commodity crops, which is what they were, uh, allowed the colonizers, the, the European colonizers, to have a lot of money. And so it's more of a status symbol to bring things from Europe back into the low country, into the United States. So they really didn't use a lot of things that were grown here. Mm, so everything was kind of an export. Correct. Yeah. And that's also why you don't see a lot of um, cultural context surrounding these very viable crops that existed in the same way that we see them in other cultures, like how uh, Japanese indigo is super popular and um, indigo is also uh, indigo fair is popular in India and all of these places, but because of the history of the way the crop was brought to market, there isn't a lot of remnants or virtually any remnants left in America. Correct. And, you know, after the Revolutionary War, I mean, the main market for the indigo grown in the Southeast, in the Low Country, was England. And England was not going to buy indigo from the colonies that just revolted against them. So they, so that's when cotton started, because cotton was actually a little bit easier to grow than indigo and process. That's when cotton sort of took over. And England turned their attention back to England, I mean to uh, India, and the Bengali India, and um, started the plantations over there. They forced the uh, indigo still has a in some parts of India, still has a really bad reputation because the the people there were forced to grow indigo and not even allowed to grow food. So, um, in fact, the indigo workers and indigo, the people there, were one of the uh, things that Gandhi, you know, fought to to better their their uh, their lives. So indigo has got a very bad reputation here, and um, we cannot ignore the past. We have to acknowledge that none of this would have happened without a lot of pain and and suffering on the parts of people. And but it, ultimately, it's not the plant's fault. You know, the plant just does what it does. It gives us blue. And I don't. Yeah, maybe that sounds strange, but you know, our our history here in the United States is mindset of the Europeans that came over here. Uh, the first, before uh, indigo, rice, and deer hides were the three main, main exports from the Port of Charleston. And at that one point, indigo accounted for 35% of the total economy of Charleston. But before that, the main export from the Port of Charleston were Native American slaves that they would round up Native Americans and put them on ships and ship them to the Caribbean to work on the sugar plantations down there. Mm. Um, I was going to say, you know, yeah, I do understand what you mean when it's like, you know, what do you do when you have this really dark history that surrounds these crops? How do we sort of have a conversation where we can recognize the history and also sort of find value and validity in cultivating these things and potentially bringing them back to market? Right. Well, I mean, indigo, you know, if you've done any research or, you know, even on Facebook or Instagram today, you can run across things about fast fashion and the utter horror that our hunger for fast fashion is causing to the planet and the people of the planet. And 
So if we can get out of that mindset and get back into, uh, you know, being more mindful about what we wear and, you know, I've always sort of done like, you know, the slow food movement is taking over. You know, you want to know, you go to the farmer's market, you want to know where the farmer who grew the beets that you buy or the tomatoes you buy in the summertime or, you know, where the, if you, if you eat meat, where the, the grass-fed pasture, where these cows, you know, if the hens were happy hens that laid your <laughs> eggs, you know, all that kind of thing. So we need to, we need to take it one step farther and be aware of where what we put on our bodies comes from you know is it polyester that's made from you know petroleum Mm -hmm. you know polyester you you can't go any store where without and look and everything's made with polyester now and that's all a plastic it's all made from petroleum and uh, the the fibers like rayon and tinsel people think well they're better they're made from trees but the chemicals and the process to make those is not that much better so if we can get back to, I'm glad to see a lot of linen being used now. Get back to, um, you know, real wool, um, real linen. Cotton is uses an extreme amount of uh, resources to grow, but there are people that are working on that and helping to uh, mitigate some of that. So... But then you want a pretty color. So let's go to the plant and mineral sources for these colors. And there, there are people and organizations that are working to help even using chemical dyes. Uh, you know, the chemical dyes are, again, for the most part, are based on petroleum and coal tar and really nasty mm. stuff. So, you know, we can, we, and so let's not have a wardrobe full of fast fashion. Let's have a very well thought out planned wardrobe of things that, you know, where the indigo was grown that dyed your jeans or where the cotton, you know, um, was grown or any, just sort of, let's take it a step farther from slow food and move it into mm-hmm. slow fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, many of the farmers that uh, we've had on the podcast all kind of come from a place of um, being artists and textiles and designers and wanting to create something that can mitigate a lot of the harsh realities that the fashion industry and fast fashion has, you know, put out into, you know, our textile system, you know, and and in a lot of ways also in turn put a lot of pressures on farmers and um, forced them to, to work within these ways that are very unsustainable. So, um, yeah, I I totally understand. Yeah. Yeah. And what are some of the ways that you've been able to sustain your practice? I know you mentioned that you aren't farming right now, but how have you been able to sort of, you know, manage the farming aspects or having enough plants to die with? Well, I have been using the Asaba, you know, indigo once when I get to go down there. And this year I'm actually going to be growing uh, indigo ferrocifruticosa, um, woad and persicaria the japanese indigo 
at a place called Big Creek Herb Farms. It's out in near Winterville, uh, outside of Athens. And so I'm hopefully going to be able to do some workshops. We can use some fresh leaf uh, dyeing workshops. And so that'll be a lot of fun. So this is really the first year that I've, I mean, I've grown things in pots and, you know, I threw seeds out in my flower bed and (laughs) things like that. But this is the first year that I've really gotten back to, I guess, really growing. I uh, just took seeds about two weeks ago to this woman who has a greenhouse. So she's going to start them for me. So we're going to also going to grow weld and coreopsis and, you know, a whole assortment of dye plants. Mm. And so it'll be fun. It's going to be a fun summer. Yeah, it sounds like it. And how many acres are you planting on? Oh, no, no not acres. <laughs> it's not It's not that much. <laughs> you know, the, the year I grew the cotton and the Carolina gold rice and the indigo, now that was, you know, you can get a lot on an acre of land. Mm. And the rice was, I'm, I'm horrible with measurements, but the rice, rice is one of the most beautiful plants I've ever seen. It's just, when it's growing, it's a booger to get started. You don't have to flood it. Um, there's a method of you start the little rice, start the rice in a greenhouse, and then you uh, plant the little plants on a ten-inch grid, and you have to keep them watered and weeded until they're tall enough to shade uh, shade out the weeds and keep the ground moist. You know, with the shade. So, but it's a beautiful plant, uh, just a beautiful plant, and. Cotton, I had no idea what I was doing, and it was a very wet summer, and the rice and the indigo loved it, but the cotton hated it. It had, it doesn't like wet feet, and so it was not very, I was not very successful with the cotton. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got enough to increase my seed supply, but that was about it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, it's been really great, you know, listening to your story and learning about, you know, how you got started and some of the history of indigo do you have any projects that you're working on? I um, had this idea actually when I was still in Charleston and it came to fruition here in Athens. I would happen to ha- make friends with some people that helped it to happen. But I wanted to start a nonprofit called the International Center for Indigo Culture. And what it would be is a place for all things indigo, not just the indigo pharaohs, but so we actually started as a 501c3 nonprofit, uh, ICIC for short, International Center for Indigo Culture. And we has taken a few years of, you know, teeny tiny baby steps. We're finally getting some momentum and are working to, you know, raise some money um, to get a really good website going. Because to start off, I want the website to be a clearinghouse for all things indigo around the world where... You know, you have a, a artist page where different people that are creating art with Indigo, um, people that are teaching, where can you go? Do you want to take in the United States? Do you want to take an Indigo dyeing class in India? Do you want to take one in, you know, England or whatever? Have this whole clearing, this whole calendar of Indigo events. Um, a marketplace where you can buy seeds or you can buy Indigo extract or you can buy art kind of thing. So that's going to be the start. And then eventually, and I've really weighed this because I'm not so sure it's not a coming from a white colonial mindset. And I've been really weighing this, but um, 
to maybe eventually have a center, like a, a physical center, where different indigo producing plants from around the world can be brought and grown and document the way that they've been used. Mm. Sort of like a, a museum of sorts. But then I'm like, well, you know, maybe I need to change my attitude, you know, change my thinking about that. So, um, you know, that could still happen though. You know, have a place where people could come for workshops or research or, you know, all kinds of things. Wow. That sounds awesome. So that's, thanks. So that's, um, a big project going on and we've got, uh, people on the board. I've got people on the board. I've got Lee Magar, Arianne Kingcomer, um, who are both indigo artists in Charleston, and Heather Powers, um, and then David Harper, uh, he's in Columbia, actually, South Carolina, are on the board, and we are, uh, I just went down, we all, most all of us went down to the Southeast Texel Symposium on Indigo in St. Augustine, well, I guess, what, about a week and a half ago, and was able to talk to some people about expanding the board. And so we've got some names of some really dynamic people with a lot of vision and a lot of uh, energy to really start working and bring this into fruition to make it starting out with this website and things like that. So um, that's one thing. And then that, I'm not going to say much about this, but I've started a, a writing project and that's all I'm going to say. It's about <laughs> <Indigo>. <laughs> yeah. Well, we all look forward to learning about what that writing project is. Can you let everyone know <laughs> the best way to find you on Instagram or Facebook? I'm C. Allen Indigo on Instagram. And then I'm, just started i had planned on sort of retiring when i after being here in athens for a little bit but indigo just won't let me go so i'm like okay i've got to go back into it but i've um brought back my c allen indigo facebook page that just brought that back and i'd taken down my website but so now i'm working on a new website it'll be c allen indigo and i'm it's going to start out mainly as a blog just like writing interesting little tidbits about indigo here and there, whether it's the history or the mysticism or growing tips or processing tips or, you know, just interesting little things on that. And I have to say, I am not a computer savvy person. I can work a loom and I can grow indigo (laughs) when it comes to computers. So I'm doing this website myself. It's it's slow going. (laughs) But I'll put it out there. I'll put it on Insta and Facebook when I when I have it up and going. Okay, perfect. So before you go, I do have one last question. And that's, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Follow your heart. Just follow your heart and do what your heart calls, calls you to do. You know, I I have been... I was in a place of like, I'm not going to have anything more to do with Indigo. I'm done. And it's like, it won't let me go. But also it's in my heart. It's like, this is, this is what I have to do. You know, I have to bring Indigo to the consciousness of not just textile people, but everybody, you know, there's a lot that can be learned from these plants. So, 
but to follow your heart and to keep on, you know, keep on doing what you're doing and growing and learning and, uh, you know, that's what keeps us all healthy and active is to keep learning about things and don't become stagnant, mm. but follow your heart while you're not becoming stagnant. That's a wrap. To see some of the beautiful images of Donna's work at Asabo Island, as well as to support her business, you can follow the links in our show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode dash 54. Next week on the podcast, Sarah is talking to Amy McKnight, a North Carolina-based fiber artist and weaver. Stay tuned next Monday for that conversation. And until next time, happy weaving! Mm-hmm.